0: a time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to episode 40 of the Feelin' Film podcast, and the first of five episodes in a row covering the great director Christopher Nolan's filmography. Yes, It's Nolan Month, and we could not be happier to kick off the new year with this awesome series.
1: That's right, Aaron. We've been looking forward to this ever since we began the podcast. Nolan is one of our favorite working directors, and it's going to be a lot of fun going through his films in this manner and looking deeper into them than maybe we have before.
0: Oh, we're going to go deep. Especially once we get to a set inception. Um, but, uh, but <laughs> a Yeah. Little, little sneak peek of what's coming, I guess. But, uh, but Patrick, before <laughs> I know, right? We did give it away. We teased it out. But before we, before we get started in that, like we always do, you know, New Year's was right around the corner. We just, uh, we just finished up and I know I had quite a few days off. Luckily, uh, I think you had some as well. And I did. That's a great time to catch up on movies and entertainment and such and so forth. So uh, I don't know about you, but I did. And I was just wondering if you were able to take any additional entertainment before you got back to your daily grind.
1: I didn't. Outside of the book that I finished, I tweeted out the fact that I'd finished it, that, uh, the book that I talked about last week. It was really good. Uh, if you didn't know, I Was Saved by the Bell was the book that I was reading at the time. Fantastic read. I recommend it to anybody who's a fan of good biographies. Good uh, stories about, you know, growing up and t- uh, loving television and being pr- a producer. And um, if you're a fan of Saved by the Bell, it's, it's a good one, too. So, but outside of that, I actually got an opportunity to guest host again on, on a, um, an episode of the Retro Rewind podcast. Uh, we got to cover an old film that I grew up watching called The Boy Who Could Fly, and uh, you can check that out. I've got a link to it on the website. And you can also go to their website, retrorewindpodcast.com, and you can check it out. It was a lot of fun. I always enjoy spending time with those guys, with Francisco and Paul over there. We have a ton of fun, uh, both before the recording starts and, and during the recording. And it's just it's such a fun time to, to, to reminisce and see how movies hold up so many years after the fact and uh the conversation itself you never know where it's gonna go uh this one had a couple of pretty interesting moments of um you know most of the time it's pretty lighthearted and we're you know cracking jokes or whatever but there were some really cool points that were made in the discussion that were uh i was pleasantly surprised to be a part of so if you get a chance to check those guys out retro rewind podcast uh, you can google it you can probably find them on itunes and uh, if you want to hear their latest episode As of this recording, it's The Boy Who Could Fly with yours truly guest hosting.
0: Well, that's great. I know you enjoy those guys a lot, and it's kind of a a niche for you, one of your favorite types of film or or eras of film, as it were. You know, I I didn't even know what this movie was, by the way.
1: When you (laughs) you first told me that you were going to do it, I'd never even heard of it. (laughs) It's a, it's a, yeah, it's an oldie. And it's definitely not one of your more popular movies, but apparently it is pretty popular because most of the time when they when they do films when they when they cover a film, uh, it's usually done by vote. So this oh, made wow. the top five of their current uh, their current picks. So apparently enough people wanted to uh, wanted to hear about it or at least to hear them cover it to to vote for it. Awesome! And I, you know, I, I hadn't seen it in so in, in a number of years. So it was nice to revisit that and talk about nostalgia and all the cool stuff that came along with that.
0: Well, I guess odds would say that some of our listeners probably know it and uh, have enjoyed it as well. And maybe they will go check out that
1: episode. I hope so. So what about you, man? Well, I've
0: been watching a lot. You know, I, I don't have anywhere near the time to go down the list. Um, so I'm going to have to narrow this down, but I did start off January strong. And in my, my first week of January, I knocked out 13 films in the first seven days of the month. So <laughs> I know, um, you know, some might say that's excessive. <laughs> I, uh, you call know, that
1: an addict is in some, in some so, circles, like, so no responsibilities
0: were sloughed off, uh, to accomplish this feat. I will tell you. Lies, um, lies. <laughs> that's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> okay. But you know, the two things I want to mention. One is last night we had the opportunity to watch the Golden Globes, which is the first kind of commercialized award ceremony of the year. Right. Uh, there are others. Many of the critics' awards locally, uh, New York's critics, I know the Seattle critics have recently done theirs. The Chicago critics, etc., have have released their award winners for the the year of 2016. But the Golden Globes and the Oscars are kind of the two big ceremonies that get publicized on network television that everybody watches. And the difference, of course, is the Golden Globes are run by the Hollywood Foreign Press, which is a much different animal as an organization than the Academy. I mean, you can just, you know, the words alone, Academy versus Hollywood Foreign Press kind of give you a good insight into what you're going to get. So the Globes is a much more lighthearted kind of fun event. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel was hosting this particular, uh, version of it, which was awesome.
1: I think uh, you mean Jimmy Fallon.
0: Oh, uh, whatever. Jimmy Fallon. You know what? I get no, him confused no, so often. No,
1: do not say whatever. When you're referring to Jimmy Fallon, if you get him wrong, <laughs> we might have words. <laughs> well,
0: uh, Fallon was, uh, <laughs> was, uh, <laughs> which is interesting. Fallon, which ties into a Nolan movie, the prestige, but Jimmy Fallon was hosting the golden globes last night and you know, this is one where the, the actors and the actresses get a little loose, they drink and there's a lot of fun stuff that happens. I guess uh, there's some interesting things that happen. Things like Ryan Reynolds, uh, making out with Andrew Garfield, maybe yeah. making, maybe making out a little bit too strong, but they did kiss and it was uh, uh, crazy, very surprising. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite moments after the show was seeing a video of uh, Emma Stone, Ryan Gosling and Damien Chazelle. And the reporter brings out his cell phone and shows her, the video of Ryan Reynolds and Andrew Garfield kissing and Emma says they did not. And then her reaction afterwards, she just looks away like in kind of disbelief and just like because I guess Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone used to date, which is, you know, Hollywood. So <laughs> anywho, uh yeah, I really love the award shows. I know you do too. You had a sick little one, so you weren't able to catch as much of it as you normally would have. But right from the start, I was so impressed. The Golden Globes had one of the best opening numbers I've ever seen. Uh, They did a take on La La Land's opening number, which, while I absolutely adored it and thought it was incredible the way that they were able to bring in all of the different films from 2016 and TV shows and, and different entertainment to... To mesh into this number that they did, it's a little hard for someone who hasn't seen La La Land to get that, and to get that same reaction. Isn't that what you were telling me last night?
1: It was. Um, I I saw a a preview, just a couple of like seconds of of Jimmy Fallon's opening number, and it was being promoted by um, by NBC. And you know, watching it, I, I was. I mean, I knew what was going on. I knew that all the Best picture nominations were being represented in some way. And so as a, as a dance routine, as a, as a Jimmy Fallon led kind of entertainment package, it was very, very fun for me, but I didn't connect to it in a way that you did because I didn't have the context. And it's sad because, you know, you and I, we talk about this every year. I mean, you, you take time, uh, and you can call it, I call it cinematic responsibility to stay caught up on the big nominations and so by the time the oscars and the golden globes come around you know by default i'm picking the movies that i've already seen you know to win even though i know they're not and i have i feel Mm -hmm. like i feel like this guy that's sort of coming to a party with all the cool kids and i only know like two or three people and i'm kind of hanging out with them when it comes to like these nominations and um while it's definitely entertaining i love you know, for the most part, most of the presenters, I thought Steve Carell, oh, <laughs> he was just, he was so funny. Oh, he and Kristen Wiig need to host <laughs> a show just, ASAP. I, they they sure. were
0: awesome together.
1: Yeah, I, um, you know, there are elements about the Globes and about the Academy Awards that I, re- I mean, I watch them every year. Um, but I, I mean, every year without fail, it just, it, it reminds me that, man, I need to see these movies. I need to see these movies. And so. The the list gets longer and longer and longer, and at some point I'll probably have to say, okay, Tuesdays at six thirty, I'm going to watch a movie that I have not seen, you know, in the last two or three years. I mean, there's movies from 2014, 2013, 2012 right. that I have not seen yet, and they're still in my queue, ready to ready to rock and roll. And so maybe 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 this year, maybe this will be the year, you know, with the podcast and all this stuff, and the you know the the self fulfilling need to to gain credibility in terms of <laughs> the knowledge of movies maybe this will be the year we'll see well you know
0: it, everything fall uh has to fall within each and every person's own life and you know, sure. i i happen to have a much uh, more f- free lifestyle um due to not being married and not having a young child you know so mm-hmm. i you know i have more time to do these things sure uh, where you know if i was to be married again or uh to have a new baby for some reason uh, thank, thankfully that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> done that. Done. Yeah, no, been there, done that. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. But, uh, you know, then I would have to adjust my lifestyle as well. And I probably wouldn't watch as many. I was talking to the friends that I was watching the show with and they have the similar reaction that you do, uh, every year we get to this time of year and they go, uh, oh, and they start making a list and then scrambling, trying to find all of the nominated films, and go catch up and see them, which the difference being that I try to see them as they come out. Um, so that I don't have to do that, <laughs> but you know, whatever works, you know, you can make a list of the three or four or five biggest ones. The ones that are going to get multiple nominations, the ones that are going to be talked about years and years from now, the moonlight, the Manchester by the sea, the Jackie, um, the La La Land, obviously, uh, those are the ones you're going to want to see. And some of the, the other ones, yeah, they're good movies. There's always going to yeah. be good movies, but like you said, As soon as the Oscars are over, we turn our attention to 2017 and we got to do this started up all over again. You you know, you you can't just always see everything. It's impossible.
1: Right. Well, and let me say this as a a side note to the to the Globes. um, I noticed this in, in the, you know, in the handful of time that I got to watch it. The commercials that debuted or that showed during the during the Golden Globes were like Super Bowl caliber to me. I mean, there were some really entertaining commercials having to do with movies or, you know, having cinema slants to them, even if they weren't, you know, advertising a movie product. Uh, I think AT&T had a great one. Um, I saw the trailer for a, um, was it a a dog's life? Is that? It's a dog's purpose. A dog's purpose. Right. With Josh Gad. Um, And I should have said this on our last episode. That's one that I'm looking forward to seeing. I think it's just kind of you know, it was, it was off my radar for some reason. But when I saw the trailer, I was going, Oh yeah, I remember that. I want to see it. Mm -hmm. But in general, I thought, I mean, I kind of wanted to stop and say, Hey, let's, let's check out some of these commercials that looked pretty fun. And um, I don't know. Did you catch that? Did you see any of the, yeah, we tried to, we had a house full of
0: kids. So we tried not to have the sound on very much during the commercials, but I mean, I've seen, I've seen every movie preview that exists multiple times. The ones that I'm, you know, aren't those those handful that I'm not gonna watch um, the Beauty and the Beast one uh was kind of nice mm. because that was a unique uh, special trailer uh that we got, and we got to actually hear Emma Watson sing, uh which was oh, I can't wait, I'm so excited they immediately <laughs> uh my daughter and her mom immediately booked a mom daughter date literally like put it in the calendar as that was on, which I thought was really neat.
1: That is cool, man. And I, I wasn't, until I saw the trailer, I was kind of on the fence about it. I mean, we're covering it. I mean, a little inside baseball, we're going to cover it when it comes out, but it was not one that I was going, yes, we got to see this. And when I heard her sing, and I saw that extended trailer, wow. I was going, mm-hmm. yep. Ready to see this one now. This is going to be good.
0: Well, the other things that I wanted to mention about the Globes are just, um, a couple quick nominations that surprised me. The two biggest surprises to me uh, were won right off the bat. <laughs> I think it was literally the first award and it was best supporting actor. And uh, myself and pretty much everyone that has seen Moonlight would have told you that Mahershala Ali, This there was no competition. Like this award was his. Um, and yet that award went to Aaron Taylor Johnson for Nocturnal Animals. And it's one of the few I haven't seen yet. So it's hard for me to fully go rage on it. But, um, you know, his performance was one that I was reading a bunch of critics who were kind of shocked that he even got nominated. So for him to win over Maharsha Ali was a, a little bit disheartening. I really thought that, uh, Ali's performance was the best of the nominated ones, um, pretty much by far. And, and it was a little sad not to see him win. Um, the other one that shocked me and, and I'm not upset about it was Isabella Huppert for uh, Elle, and she won Best Actress. So a a Best Actress award went to a foreign film, which is super rare. I mean, yes, this is the Hollywood foreign press, but it's rare. It doesn't happen. I mean, she beat out some incredible heavy hitters like Amy Adams and Natalie Portman. Um, Just huge, huge performances. So that was pretty shocking. And, uh, it, it's definitely, I, I L has gotten a lot of praise more so than most foreign films get. And, uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I'm going to have to check that one out now due to the amount of awards that it's garnering. Interesting. And, man. Yeah. And, and then, and then I, I would be remiss if we didn't mention this. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, <laughs> if you're a member of our group or our Twitter feed, Last night, you will have seen uh, me going just a little bit nuts uh, because a certain movie that came out last year uh, decided to blow everyone away and set a record for the most awards to one film ever in a Golden Globes. It went a staggering seven for seven, and that is a little known movie called La La Land which, you know, I, I don't know. You may have heard of it. I don't know. I, I, I may have mentioned it once or twice in passing on the show. But, um, yes, I, Patrick, I was going nuts. I was jumping up and down out of my seat. Every time they would win, I was fist pumping. I was I was so amazed, so shocked uh, at the way that, that this movie was received. Now, Golden Globe success does not always mean Oscar success. And there's a big reason why. One of the major reasons why is that – the Globes kind of cheats, in my opinion, and they break their movie categories up into two different sides. They have their dramas and then they have their musical and comedy category, which is pretty much your catch-all things like last year's The Martian ended up in that one because it's like, where else do you put it?
1: It's a fantastic musical. Don't you know? Oh, it's an <laughs> amazing musical. It is. <laughs> and
0: I think it won last year for that category, but you know, because of that La La Land didn't have to go up against as many heavy hitters. It didn't have to face Manchester, Jackie, Lion, Moonlight, etc. Some of these other films that are considered the biggest contenders for these awards. Um, so I think that that contributed largely to its ability to sweep, uh, its award noms, but I love it. I love seeing the praise of this film. I mean, I've mentioned it many times It is, it's up there into my top two. It's my number two at this point. I, the only movie that I have not let it surpass is the Lord of the Rings. And, you know, unless La La Land becomes a trilogy, it's going to be going to be hard to top that for me. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> but it, it was a fun award show, man. I really enjoyed it. And it just got me re-energized, uh, for the award season as a whole and looking forward to the Oscars, uh, because I think we're going to have a really good time with that one.
1: I think so too. I've got it. I've got the uh, the the Golden Globes DVR. So at some point, I'm going to catch the things that I missed. Um, and uh, even though I know the the outcomes, I'm, you know, the journey is just as important and just as entertaining as the uh, <laughs> as the uh, destination. That it is, my friend. Well, let's get started uh, with our weekly pick and uh, kick things off for Nolan month. With this little uh, little piece of uh, cinema,
0: yep, and that would be insomnia. And uh, listeners, we apologize. We were going to do this in chronological order, but we might have uh, mixed that up just a little bit. So we're doing insomnia this week, and Memento the week after that, and then we'll be back into chronological order. <laughs> but insomnia is the second feature film, uh, by it's only our two years,
1: man. removed from Memento. So it's not yeah, too
0: far. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. I just wanted to put it out there.
1: Yeah, that's uh, my bad, guys. I, so, hey, I, I wasn't going to say that.
0: <laughs> I was going to let him wonder.
1: I like, I like keeping it real with our listeners. Oh, really good, good for you.
0: Um, so Insomnia was released in, I wrote down 2012, that I can't be right. Uh, 2002, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this was a film that stars Al Pacino, Robin Williams, the late Robin Williams, and Hilary Swank. It's actually a remake of a 1997 Norwegian film that... I've never gone back and watched, but I really should do that at some point and see the comparison. Um, I
1: read a little bit in the uh, trivia section of the IMDb page, which you know you guys know I do that whenever um, we cover a movie. Uh, And apparently as intense as this movie was, it was a scaled back version of the Norwegian film. There were some key scenes that were significantly altered to be a little less intense, (laughs) which is surprising to me because – this film right here had a lot of uh, intensity.
0: Yeah. I, you know, that's tends to happen. It happened with the, uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo films as well. Uh, when those got remade for American audiences, even though they were pretty intense, they it, it didn't quite even live up to the, I guess it was Swedish versions. I can't remember uh, what language those films were, but yeah, it's, it's one I definitely want to check out at some point. So I guess getting right into it, I've seen this film numerous times I have I've seen and enjoyed it numerous times um I've always felt that it was very underrated as far as Nolan's filmography goes very underappreciated doesn't come up hardly ever when you're talking to someone about Nolan films they're gonna just skip right over this one and talk about pretty much everything else so um I'm curious though what your thoughts are because if I'm right you had not seen this before Is that, is that, wasn't this your one Nolan blind spot?
1: Yes, actually it was. When we started talking about Nolan month and you mentioned insomnia, I actually hesitated about saying, I haven't seen this movie because I wanted this to be my first introduction to it. This episode, I wanted to go into it kind of fresh, um, not have any kind of, I'd say what movie bias towards it. But the thing is I can see why this would be considered one of Nolan's less popular movies. You know, while it has those cerebral themes of exploration of human beings and their psychology, it feels more like a crime drama because that's what it is. Like this feels like a, it feels like a late '90s crime drama that you would, you would see. Only it's got some, some of those twists and turns to it. It's got a fantastic cast. I was just blown away at seeing these guys get, you know, you know, popping up on the screen for the credits. I was like, what? Al Pacino? What? Hilary Swank? What? What's going on here? But I can. I can see why it's sort of separated from things like memento interstellar uh inception even though it begins with the letters i n i mean you think you know it's a Nolan movie so it's got to start with the letters i n um but <laughs> good call just <laughs> with the exception of memento I'm, I'm thinking it means i think the full title of that is in memento i n Memento, you know uh, if not it should be but um I really enjoyed this. I enjoyed being, um, being sort of brought into this, this world, of, of, uh, of detective work and seeing Al Pacino be Al Pacino. I mean, he. I've seen him act the way he does in this movie, as uh, as Will Dormer. I love the fact that his last name is sort of an Italian translation for the word sleep. Is it I really? I did not know that. That's fascinating. I think, well, I don't know if it's Italian, but it's a, it's a derivative, it's a foreign interpretation of the word sleep. Which, duh, it's it's Christopher Nolan. He's going to do that kind of stuff. But just seeing how the story played out and seeing this slow burn progression of him uh, taking, him being uh, Chris Nolan taking this story from what we know of the crime drama world and making it cerebral. I think that's where his bread and butter is, is taking something and creating something more extraordinary out of that something, because this could have been one of those ordinary catch the bad guy movies. And it turned into something that became more of a think piece, something that you walk away going, man, I got a lot of questions about, you know, motives and about (laughs) how we approach the world and, do the ends justify the means and and these questions that come out. uh, And that's where I think Nolan really, that that's where the Nolan stamp really is, is in those kinds of end of the movie questions. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly with that. And, you know, for me,
0: having seen it multiple times, I was kind of appropriate that we ended up doing this film this week because I look back at my statistics uh, on my Fitbit and I, I had an average of 4.32 hours of sleep last week and I often felt very similar to Dormer uh, throughout my week. We had an incredibly busy uh, work schedule and there were times when I would late in the afternoon just feel like I was floating through each day in a haze. And and that's really what happens to him in this movie. He he becomes detached And he's not quite able to focus anymore. He starts losing it. Um, And so I I, I was able to relate to that in a big way this last week. And it just, it was kind of neat to, to go through that, not neat to go through the actual lack of sleep, but uh, to have that connection to the film for the first time. Um, You know, I've always loved this one right from the opening scene personally, because the shots of them flying into Alaska it's got to be, it's got to be one of my favorite Nolan shots in his entire filmography. I think it's gorgeous. There's just these icebergs below as they go in and, you know, eventually they, they come around and the plane's coming into this small town of Nightmute. And for me, it's very reminiscent of Jurassic park. It's a little bit of a different sense. It's not the same sense of wonder that we know we're flying into a park where we're going to have dinosaurs, you know, but you know, this this idea of a helicopter coming around bins and and these amazing landscapes of Isla Nublar. That's how I feel when we are going into the town of Nightmute uh, with the plane, the small plane.
1: Yeah. I love the cinematography in this Wally Pfister, who apparently has become, who is Nolan's cinematographer of choice was in on this. He also did all the Batman movies, Memento inception, the prestige. And so I'm picturing these other movies in my head as I'm watching this film and I'm, I'm trying to find the common ground, some of the common elements that he uses. And in the same way that you see that those big sweeping shots, even like the last, last shot of the film, you know, that's the pan back of, of, um, of Ellie and will on the dock. Uh, you just showed the, the grandness of Alaska and just the, the, the beauty of it in, in the weirdest sense, like what you, what you said, Um, but, um, in the same way, um, the close shots, like the cuts, the, the cuts to like, you know, memories here and there and showing that abruptness, you're creating this sense of real, um, just discomfort, which I think is the point as, as a participant of this, as a, as a, as an audience member no one wants you to feel that sense of abruptness because that's what, that's what will feels. And that's what, um, he wants us to feel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He really does. It's, it's, it's such a, (laughs) to use part of the town's name, it's a muted approach to the cinematography too, because we're not talking about anything outside of this small location. I mean, it is really tight and really confined. And so for us, we aren't dealing with multiple dream landscapes and multiple um, action scenes. You know, there's a couple of chase scenes, but these are older actors at this point in their careers. We're not actually like going through big, long police chases, um, with the exception of the one. And of course, you know, their age plays into that. They don't, it doesn't go so well, (laughs) to be honest, with uh, old Al Pacino trying to go over some logs. Um, And one of my favorite things really, though, is that, is also just the way that Nolan uses those stars. Um, it's fascinating to me that it takes 50 minutes. I actually noted the time, this this watch. 50 minutes until we hear Robin Williams's voice for the first time in
1: this film. Yeah, I remember reading that on the trivia page as well, that Robin Williams, his voice, or he doesn't show up until 50 minutes into it. And you wouldn't expect that from another director. You'd expect... Robin Williams, I mean, he's on the poster, for goodness sake. You know, where is he? Um, and that made the movie more intriguing because you're going, okay, what's his role in this? Usually when I see, you know, it's kind of like the MacGuffin with Mark Hamill in The Force Awakens. Everybody's wondering, when's he going to show up? When's he going to show up? And he becomes this little 15-second visual that gets a lightsaber handed to him, right? <laughs> and when I when I watch movies and I see stuff, famous people or people that I recognize on the poster or listed in the credits, I immediately look for them. You know, if I know it's not going to be, you know, the main person I'm wondering, okay, who's that going to be? And so as I'm going through the film, I'm thinking, Oh, he must be the killer. Cause he's not a detective. He's not, um, uh, you know, he, he's not Will's partner. That's Hap. And, you know, he's definitely not Ellie. So he's gotta be the killer. But then things get turned on their heads and it becomes what I recognized as sort of a, um, a psychological evaluation of the idea, um, of someone being justified for the things that they do. And it reminded me a lot. You weren't at uh, you weren't in high, you weren't at the same high school with me this year. Like my, Junior, I was You weren't at <laughs> high school this year either, Patrick. No, I'm saying <laughs> in high school, I, I, I finished one, one book. Um, I finished two books, the great Gatsby and crime and punishment. And I began to think about crime and punishment and Dostoevsky's idea of this main character named Raskolnikov, who the whole dilemma with him is that he feels justified. He feels like what he's done at the beginning of this book is completely justifiable. He's an extraordinary, he he considers himself extraordinary because he can make all of these arguments for why he did what he did. And it's in the same vein that, that, um, that Walter, you know, Robin Williams character did. And it just fascinated me because I'm thinking I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting the crime drama with a twist at the end because that's, that's what I've gotten with Chris Nolan. And I got more than that, which should not surprise me because that's what I get with his films but I'm glad that it came packaged this way because it was a pleasant surprise to me. And it definitely didn't feel like the movie was dated, even though it's, you know, an early 2000 movie. uh, It felt like it could have come out in the last couple of years because of the relevance, because of everything that was going on with it.
0: Yeah. I, I concur and you know, it, it had only like a 40 something million dollar budget and it made 113 or so million. I think is what I saw at the box office. I mean, this film did, it did very well. For not being uh, spoken about hardly ever, you know, and for being having these great a list actors in it, you know many have actually said that this is debatably Robin Williams's best performance. Christopher Nolan has raved about it himself um and just how amazing it was to work with him uh, and how how completely. He encapsulates the entire character uh, without ever going dark. You know, he's able to be his jovial, normal self Mm.
1: afterwards,
0: unlike like a Heath Ledger, who really immersed himself in the Joker to the point where it was affecting his real life ability. Robin Williams Mm. was able to turn that on and off which you know is well I'm, i say that i should know no, we, we know yeah. he now that he also had some depression issues that he faced but with regards to this specific film
1: yeah i wasn't laughing at that what i was laughing at was the fact that you you compared him to, to another, Ledger. another
0: another nolan film yeah you know what we're not no, doing no, no, this on no, no, purpose people
1: no no, no. <laughs> that's not what i'm saying i was trying to make a good point about this i wasn't trying to call you out for for self-advertising or anything like that <laughs> What one of the questions I had, and I'll pose it to you, was: Do you think that Finch, in some ways, was a foil to Will uh, Dormer, as in comparison to Batman to the Joker? That's because that's kind of what I felt. I felt like you had this same kind of opposite chemistry, where he, both both characters had the same, I can't, I can't describe it. They both had a connection to each other and it's almost like, you know, Batman needed the Joker and I feel like Will Dormer needed Walter Finch to deal with his demons. You know, that make sense.
0: uh Oh, it makes perfect sense. I I love that you did. You went there because I actually have something written down uh, and I will read it verbatim. My note to myself where it says Finch's need for companionship through Dormer. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what you're saying. It's something that I picked up on and I, I felt very strongly in the film. Um, and I love the comparison and I, I doubly love it because it's Nolan between the Batman and Joker. And and it is like that. It's not an ongoing thing. It's not, you know, this multi spanning lifetime that the Batman and Joker in theory have been going at it. But, you know, within the context of this story, what we see of dormer is that this is a man who will go to any length, he will, he will pay any cost to put people that he perceives as guilty of crime behind bars to enact justice. He, he's honestly a champion for good. There's so much good in him, but yet he goes about it in a way that is outside of the law too because he's trying to make sure of these things that he doesn't feel that the system is going to, uh, protect the innocence. He he doesn't feel that the system is going to accurately punish the guilty. So he's doing what he has to do to make sure that that occurs. And then, you know, we have Finch who has this great need for companionship shown through his whole relationship with the girl and everything about that. And now she's gone. And it's almost like Dormer steps into his world and plays that role for him. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And yeah, it's, it's fascinating to watch them play off of each other because Dormer needs his need to, to put people away and to catch criminals for that to occur. You have to have the criminal, the criminal has to exist, you know? And so Finch is that guy. And then you have that Finch who needs, needs to be able to have someone to inspire him to write or, to provide the companionship that he so desperately seeks because he's such a loner because he can't open himself up to anybody. I think that's part of yeah. why he confesses himself because he he wants to open up to someone so badly, um, you know, and okay, it's the cop. <laughs> that's what's brilliant about the script.
1: But what's, what's funny about that is the conversations that he has with dormer. I, I love him dropping these lines every once in a while where he goes, Oh yeah, that's believable. Yeah, that's that's something I would write because he's a crime he's a crime writer. He writes crime novels. And I love that in some ways he's almost using Dormer as fodder or inspiration. as research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as inspiration to either validate or invalidate an approach that he's going to make. It's it's almost as if uh, while he, while I can definitely get behind the idea that he's looking for companionship, I think he's also playing Dormer and he's using him and he's, I mean, he's really being very candid or very candid about that. He's saying, <laughs> you know, you're my, you're, you're, my muse or not muse, but you're my, you're my inspiration, you know, whatever it is. It's, but he's not, he's being very blunt about it. He's saying, look what you're saying. Yep. That matches. That's good. Uh, I could use that. It's almost like he's not even taking seriously the fact that he's going to be asked questions about this murder. And, um, and I, I, I love how he manipulates Dormer. I mean, I don't love that he manipulates him, you know, from a moral standpoint, but to have a character who's able to do what he does, um, to an extent to, to Dormer as a, as a person who you wouldn't expect that from the very beginning, uh, is just a great character study for those two to see how their relationship becomes something very interesting
0: it does and you know it's also obviously brought on by you know the idea of the movie's name which is the insomnia and really it's not as much about the lack of sleep um you know it's about the slow heavy burden that dormer has it's you know his entire character is built around this this person who is carrying secrets we see in the the very beginning of the film and then it's really expertly peaceably revealed to us throughout the movie until the very end when it kind of all comes full circle and we understand what we've been seeing. But they give us a little tease at the very beginning about, you know, that there's this case that's under investigation and he's worried about it. And we see right then early on him scrubbing and we don't know what he's doing. We don't know or we, we see it's a, it's like a close-up shot. So we don't know what's going on. We don't know that he's like, you know, messing with a blood stain at the time. Um and then, but then as the film progresses, you know, he has the conversation with his partner, with Hap, where Hap kind of moves the plot along and lets us know, okay, Dormer's done something and, and, you know, IA's looking, Dormer's nervous. He's, he's acting guilty and he, he, you can tell at that point that he's carrying these secrets, right? And so that's what I get the most out of this film. I, I really look at this as a life lesson on the idea of a white lie. Because, you know, we grow up and our parents tell us all the time, you know, every lie matters. Well, it was just a little lie. It was just a little lie, mom or dad. It it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, it wasn't wasn't a life-altering thing that I'm lying about. And the way that that starts to desensitize you to where you can make it, it becomes easier to lie the next time. And the next time. And then about the bigger thing. And you start carrying these secrets and they just compound the problem. And it's, it's, it's this layer of lie upon lie upon lie to the point where you start to forget the truth. And it's, it's, it's so well done in this movie. You know, there's a point where Dormer legitimately doesn't know if he shoots his partner on purpose or not. And I, to me as a viewer, honestly, I've never once questioned that. I've never thought he did it on purpose. I've watched the scene so many times. I've paused it, watched it over and over. I've never once really, truly believed that he did that on purpose to me. It's, it's showing us what it does to you, what these lies are doing to him inside. It's, it's his brain that's causing that, you know, it's not really reality anymore. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, And so, you know, it becomes this whole thing where, you know, is his insomnia caused by the guilt of killing his partner. Um, or the daylight, or is it both, you know, and, and I love that thread that, that goes throughout this whole film.
1: Yeah. When I, when I think about that whole progression, I love that the film itself, the cinematography and the scenes, um, of the characters that nothing is clear, you know, that, that everything is, you've got the hazy fog, you know, when they're going after the, you know, the killer, and he ends up shooting shooting half. Um, he's got this hazy brain later on as he's constantly getting less and less and less sleep. Um and it relates to the fact that there's this consciousness that's full of guilt and shame and it needs to be released. He needs to let that go. And I love that you said that, you know, when you live with a lie, when you live with the deceit Even if it's very minor, it grows and it gets bigger and more complex because you have to cover that up with another one to protect that one. And then it just, it compounds itself. And there is, there's this immense weight that from personal experience, I can tell you that I've lived with of having to keep a secret or having to eventually make a confession years after the fact. And it's not that, You know, it's, you know, when I had to ask forgiveness from somebody, it wasn't really, it was about them. It was giving them affirmation of saying that I was wrong, but it was me saying, look, I need to be man enough to be able to say, I did something that was hurtful. I did something that was wrong and I need to own up to that. And this, this, this story, you know, Dormer's story, I think is, is his progression from being one thing and getting to a place of confessing, you know, that last scene, I, I, one of my favorite moments in the movie is that last scene of him telling, uh, Ellie, you know, she's about to throw the bullet into the ocean or into the, uh, ocean. I can't remember. It's Alaska. It's <laughs> the water, a bunch of
0: cold water frozen. It's, it's you- a, it's a melting glacier.
1: Yeah. Into the freezer. Uh, and he goes, no, um, he, I can't remember the line itself, but he basically says it, it, it starts here, you know, and it may not be a big deal to you now, but it's going to become a big deal. You know, the steps, the thing you, you know, the choice you make now will have an effect on who you become because this whole time Ellie has been almost like his, you know, protege, you know, she's trying to learn from him. She's like, ah, yeah, I remember when you said this. And she's just enamored with him from the very beginning. And I and I love that contrast between the two. Because at the very end, when we see that conversation that he has with her, we know that what he's saying is believable. And he means it. And we know that... I love the fact that we don't know that if she throws it into the, into the water. I mean, I don't think she does because she puts it back into the bag. But part of me kind of wishes that we didn't see that because it would leave her with that open-ended question of, did she start to go down the path that he went or did she stay true to who she knew she needed to be? And, uh, and I thought that was great.
0: Yeah. I really liked it. It shows us personally. I think for me, I wanted to see that there's a character that has some pureness because everybody else is kind of in that gray murky area. And so I like the fact that that decision is made. And, you know, the word that comes to mind when I think of her relationship with Dormer is idolization at at, to a large extent um, to the point where she's willing to to make that call because she she idolizes him. She believes in what his goodness is or what his the justice that he is championing so much that it, it clouds her own judgment. It's another, it's another metaphor of the cloudiness here where, you know, it's not insomnia for her, but it's, it's definitely altering her perception, uh, because she is allowing what she sees in him to make her, you know, consider doing the same type of thing. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. It is a, it's a fantastic ending overall. It's a great scene. Um, And, uh, and, and I love the way in which he gets to have some peace, you know, it's kind of, it's so reminiscent of real life. Again, I go back to that's my big takeaway and what I feel in this movie, that idea of the lies being so heavy and the burden being so, so much. And then the relief you get when you let that go Mm -hmm. And, and when you let it all out, like you said, having to confess something or having to eventually come clean because, you know, for the most part, we always do have to at some point. It's a matter of how heavy it's going to get on us, and 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 what relationships are going to be taken down with us. And in this case, you know, his partner dies. Um, yeah. In theory, partially because of this weight that he is carrying, um, this innocent uh, is yeah. is
1: punished. I think that's the linchpin when his when he kills Hap. I think that's the point when he has to start owning up to the rest of his life i think that was the moment that he said nope i've got to and he fought it i mean he fought it he was going to plant the murder weapon he was he was doing all these things to try to cover it up and i don't know the hearts of every man woman or child in the world um and i'm i won't deny that some people can say that they can live with you know live with guilt (laughs) i personally can't but to me, whether or not you live with it, I don't think anybody can deny that it changes you. And I think that's where Ellie's char- or where Hillary Swank's character, Ellie, really made an impact is she saw that progression in him. She saw that outsider's transformation of this person that she idolized. And at the end of the day, she still saw the best in him. She said, look, I get it. I get what you're doing it's not my approach, (laughs) it's not who I am, but I get it and I'll protect that. And he goes, no, don't let what I do change who you are. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that exchange because it's almost as if he's handing the baton and he's saying, you're my equal at this point. You're no longer, you know, you're no longer a student. Even though I don't, I mean, she studied his stuff but she was never his student officially, but you get what I'm saying. And I think that that was what was beautiful about that last moment was the fact that we saw almost an equalization. And she began to take that torch, you know, she took the torch and now she's going to go on and she's going to, you know, become the detective that I think she wants to be because of how she viewed him, even until he, you know, even up to the point when he died.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So good, man. So good. So, so you enjoyed it, uh, which makes me very, very happy. Um, how are we going to, I guess, you know, at some point I want to definitely talk about how we see these films in, in some sort of order. I mean, I know I rank everything and you don't, so I'm going to want to hear, <laughs> maybe we'll save it till the end and I'll, I'll ask you your rankings at the end, as far as, uh, at least as far as the ones we've covered on the show go. Yes. Uh, but I, I that I'm definitely good. curious where this one fills, fills in for you. Um, you know, since we are going a little out of order, I'm curious also, did you see anything in this, that kind of was a progression from memento like oh, wait yes that's right yeah so this came after memento right yes yes um, did this show you anything that you that might have you know been like oh okay i see nolan going there now going in this direction
1: yeah i think there is some exercising of the use of visuals and the use of sound um and this is just me guessing this is just my own personal take i'm not saying he did this but in memento as we'll talk about in a little bit the the cuts between you know the different scenes being out of order there were there were cuts when flashing back you know there were there were solid just like abrupt cuts when walter was talking about his relationship with the girl there were cuts when dormer was talking about or as he was, you know, as he told his story here and there to that, that, you know, those moments where he's cleaning something, you know, we don't know what that is. Uh, And I see that a little bit in Memento. I also see the absence of music purposely done. There's a, there's a really great moment where the lack of music is used that I really dig. And it's, it's near the beginning of the film when Will and Hap are investigating the girl's room. And after conversing with Ellie and her partner, he says, he said he wants to go talk to the boyfriend at school, and he wants to go now. You know, he wants to pull him out, he wants to embarrass him, he wants it to be a big scandal. You know, just <laughs> typical Al Pacino kind of attitude. It's a
0: very Al Pacino moment, yeah.
1: It really is. And then they say, "We can't do that." It's ten o'clock. He goes, "Yeah."
0: <laughs> he's <laughs> like, "Yeah, in the morning,
1: duh." <laughs> and, he's like, and they're like, "No, it's ten p.m." And the next moment, you hear crickets.
0: That's so like good. you would
1: hear. At night, and at that point, I didn't know that. Maybe I maybe it wasn't said, or maybe I missed it. But I didn't know that the sun, that that they were in a part of Alaska where that was the case, where it stayed daylight most of the time, and that was kind of like the kickoff of what we're going to get into. And um, I just I, I think that he does that in his later films. I think I'll have to you know when we when we talk about memento, I'll look for those things, but those are the things that I recall that I think he progressed and he used, uh, again in that film, particularly.
0: Yeah, I do too. I, I love the use of sound by him in general. And, and I thought that was, those are some great touches. Um, this is, this is though really such a straightforward, forward procedural. Um, it's not got the idea that prestige or memento or some of his other films do of, you know, looking for the secret. It, it is, It is really more about watching the characters struggle with something that we see in plain view, you know, and that's, this idea of the pervasive daylight that exposes all, um, and, and, you know, and with that, um, was creepy, (laughs) was it, was it, was it (laughs) with that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to actually use that to segue into our connecting points, uh, because that is something that I want to talk about was that daylight, There are two scenes that really stand out in this film uh, from a connection moment and from a just technical Marvel just acting and and everything about them. And so it's really hard to narrow it down to one. I'm going to I'm going to cross my fingers that you pick the other one. Um, But if you don't, I'll just talk about it, too. So the scene that does the most for me, though. And, you know, you'll, you'll probably understand this very easily knowing what I've said already about how the white lie concept, um, is what I connect to from this movie. But the moment with dormer trashing his hotel room, um, he's feverishly just trying to do everything he can to block that light out that is pouring in. He is fighting against it. Um, he wants to live in the darkness. He wants to hide his secrets, you know? And that light is just, it's, it's making it hard. <laughs> it is, it is shining a light and it is exposing him. And ultimately this leads to Rachel, uh, the innkeeper coming in to the room and, and, Dormer confesses his secret because he, he's, he's just breaking down in this moment. And he, he kind of, kind of like Finch having to tell Dormer, Dormer has to, you know, you got to get it out, man. You have to, it's going to eat you in, up inside if you don't. And so he confesses to her about having planted the evidence in his previous case. And this is such a I love both the cinematic nature of this scene um and we we finally realize here in this moment what all of those quick cuts we've seen coming before have been about where he's planting the bloodstain. But it also is emotionally powerful because like I said it's the moment that the weight of his secrets just become too much to bear. And because we can, this is us, this is us, this is us trying to do what Dormer is doing in our everyday life. It's us trying to keep a secret from our wife. It's us trying to keep a secret from our boss, um, from our families. So they don't know something about our lifestyles, whatever the case may be. These are the things that put us in a position where we are scrambling Tearing down the room and the walls around us. Trying to do anything we can to protect that secret. And so I love it. I love the way his acting is in this scene. I think he does an incredible job of uh, giving us a person that is just like us in that moment of complete breakdown. Um, Ultimately, he's just freaking tired, man. (laughs) Like, he is just freaking tired. He's tired of hiding it. He's tired of dealing with it for so long. And eventually he asks Rachel what she thinks of his confession. And I love her response, um, because she talks about how she's in Alaska to escape something. She says, there's only two people, kind of people that are here, those that are born here and those that are trying to escape something. And I wasn't born here. And so he gets this moment of connection with her. Right. And he's asking her to evaluate. He's trying to figure out what he wants someone to tell him what he did was right or wrong. And her, her response to that is it's about what you thought was right at the time and what you're willing to live with. And so for me, this scene just sums up the entire film, the entire lesson I take, um, about how much, you know, that sin, those lies, those secrets erode us and how relieving and, uh, just how, completely calming it is to finally tell the truth. Wow.
1: That, well, I can't top that. Let's just move into our finish. That's, that's really good stuff, man. Um, I, you know, I wish I could have picked that scene because that's a phenomenal, that's a phenomenal moment. Just the amount of stuff that's in there and all so true. The only thing that I can come up with that, may even remotely come close to being that good. <laughs> to me, and this is my connecting point, it's it's the conversation that Dormer and Finch have on the boat. So this whole time, I'm trying to figure out who this guy Finch is. You know, I, First of all, let me just say this. I love all the conversations on the phone, not just with them, but the conversations just in general. Um, I don't know why I gravitated towards those, but it seemed like every time someone was on the phone with someone else, the emotion... Had to be just right, and it was in Dormer's conversations in particular with Hap's wife, his first conversation with Walter, even in his conversation with the guy from Internal Affairs. I mean, you you felt that tension, you felt that, and and so this conversation on the boat was it was so calm, so serene, like there was no there was no anger, there was no um, excitement there was no fear and and I I really credit this to Robin Williams as an actor because I think what he did in that conversation that he what he allowed his character Walter to do was to (laughs) honestly help me believe that what he did wasn't wrong by the end of the conversation I had doubts about whether or not what he did was actually uh, a bad thing Um, And going back to my Dostoevsky reference, I feel like he was trying to justify his extraordinariness, like that he could be above the law and that what he was actually doing where um, he may have pulled the trigger, he didn't, you know, not literally obvious, but he he may have killed this woman, but it was really her boyfriend that was the jerk, you know, and to plan on this guy would actually be a better thing. And I think that kind of in contrast to what, you're seeing brought out. What this brought out was this sense of how we live with the lies that we tell ourselves. And that eventually we believe those lies. And that sounds so cliche to say, but it's true. If we tell ourselves something over and over and over again, eventually it becomes truth to us because we have convinced ourselves, because we have committed to that deception. And we can even go so far as to convince others who, by all accounts, by any kind of evidence, could prove us wrong. We could persuade someone because of how we articulate it, because of the tone of our voices, because of the way in which we present our case. Someone could say, well, you know what? Maybe you do have a point. And, you know, I started thinking about how that affects me and how I have the ability to do that. Sad to say I have the ability to to convince other people of deceptions about me, and I, I don't, you know, that's not like who I am. But I've done that in the past, and it reminds me that at the at the very least, I've got to begin every choice that I make with that uh, with that idea: is, am I going to stay true to myself when I make this choice, and uh, will I be able to listen to reason when someone speaks wisdom into my life? And in some ways I felt sad for Walter because like you said, he wanted companionship and that's a good thing to want, but he did everything outside the bounds of humanity to get it. And when it didn't work out for him, he just discarded it. (laughs) And, you know, I almost wonder what would have happened had he lived, (laughs) who would have been his next victim, what would have happened to him next. And it just, for me, it was sad to think that, he would li- – I mean, he lives his life alone in a cabin sometimes. He lives his life with two dogs in an apartment. Um, anyway, I'm rambling about that. But I think that conversation with him and Dormer really brought out the sense of understanding just how well we have the ability to both to see ourselves and other people around us and how dangerous that can be.
0: I would agree. I would agree. And it's uh, – that, that would be the other scene that I was talking about. So kudos to you for picking the right yes. one. Yes, you win. Um, <laughs> you get to stay on the podcast. Uh, all no right. <laughs> no, I, I really love that scene. and you know, it's such a chess game. You're watching these two veteran actors that are, I mean, they are all time greats, and they are just going at it. Their verbal cues, their uh, gestures, their facial expressions. So calm, both of them in this manner the whole time. And it's just got one of the greatest like kind of gotcha moments in cinema, to be honest, when the fairy's finally pulling away and, you know, Vince <laughs> Walter raises his hand and he has that that tape recorder. And he's just like, yeah. I mean, it's like it's like got him, you know, and it's such a deflating moment for, uh, you know, for uh, Dormer's character that he's gone through all of this and, and now here he is again, you know, being kind of up against the wall with his decision making. Yeah. So I, yeah, I love that scene as well. I think it is just from an acting standpoint, it is probably the overall best scene in the film. Just those two stars going at it like that.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Well,
0: that was good, man. It's good stuff. Um, great kickoff to Nolan month. I am excited to continue through this over the next four weeks with you and, to explore some of these films. Uh, we got Memento on the schedule, and then I think we're doing The Dark Knight. Uh, and then we're going to move to Inception and Interstellar. So, gosh, it's such a good lineup. I, oh, <laughs> it excites me.
1: Well, my big hope is that, uh, that people in our Facebook group and, and, and throughout social media would get involved in the conversation. This is this one of the reasons that we picked Nolan Month was because he's a conversation starter. His films bring about a lot of questions and discussion. And so that's my hope. I think that's yours as well, that um, that, that discussion would get uh, ignited with with this film and continue on over the next several weeks. And if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash feel and film, and you can get to our Facebook group from there. Um, and you can also find... Um, this episode, along with all of our other ones, at feelinfilm.com, or if you want to connect with us on Twitter, you can find us at feelinfilm, F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M, and we're on Instagram at podcast. so we try to give you a visual uh, representation of our good discussion as much as possible. <laughs> um, but if you want to find me, if you want to talk about uh, things just directly at me, you can find me at shoelesspatch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at that same handle. And uh, you can also find me and my thoughts at my website, thisispatch.com. What about you, Aaron? Where can they find you?
0: Well, you can find me all over the interwebs at Aaron L. White, A A R O N E L W H I T E. Facebook, Twitter, etc. You search it, you'll find me. Love to talk. Uh, come find me and, and let me know what you think. Um, come join the group. Come Come interact with us on Twitter. We always love that stuff. Um, I do want to drop a quick announcement here as we wrap up, Patrick, and that is about the feel this film hashtag. If you're a longtime listener, you've probably heard us talk about this. Oh, I don't know, maybe four or five months ago at this point, Um, we rolled out this hashtag feel this film and we asked you to use it when you sent tweets or use it on Facebook uh, to tell us about a movie that you think is one that evokes a lot of emotion and a lot of feeling from you. Uh, And that one that we should cover on the show. And now is the time to start doing that because what is coming down after Nolan month is a couple of episodes where we're going to do some listener picks and we are going to use the feel this film hashtag to generate the list of movies to have our Facebook group vote on. So there's two, two elements to this. One is use the hashtag to get your recommendation in there. Absolutely. Number two is to join the Facebook group so that you can vote. Boom. So that's, that's how it's going to work. Um, we hope that many of you will participate. Uh, we've already got some great films that are already recommended using that hashtag Superman three. That's one of them. (laughs) That's luckily we're going to, uh, have to cut a few out. So, (laughs) Um, wonder what the first one to go will be but uh, no seriously we love you guys participation it's what drives the show it's what drives us to keep going Um, it's the best part of this whole process so use it hashtag feel this film and let us know what you want us to cover that's all we've got for this week Patrick but as we always say until next time stay positive and keep feeling film.